Hey, this is Norman Brannan from Antimatter Zine and Texas is the Reason, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with another brand new episode. And on the show this week, we have the one, the only, Dan Yemen. Very excited to have Dan here. He has a very extensive resume, Paint It Black, right? We know them. We love them. They have a new record, Famine, coming out on Revelation Records. Dan's new band, Open City has a new record, Hands in the Honey Jar, coming out on Get Better Records. Also, Dan is in Bitter Branches with the legendary Tim Singer, not to mention all of Dan's previous work, Lifetime, Kid Dynamite. I mean, come on. The guy's resume is spotless, and we cover everything. That conversation is coming up shortly. But first, here's how you can support the new scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. At New Scene Pod. Follow me on Twitch at The New Scene. Shirts. We have shirts available for sale at Death Wish Inc. Short sleeve, long sleeve, different designs. Pick one up. It's a great way to support the show. Reviews. Give us five star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm on the push to get us over 200 reviews on each of those platforms, so I need your help. Leave a review, write a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. And you can always write me at newscenepod at iodinerecords.com. Also, don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. The new LP from Best X, With a Smile, is available now. Get it. The new LP from Garrison and Orange Island, their split record, that's out now. Pick that up. Dead Bars just did a second pressing of the Regulars LP. They're an excellent punk band located out of Seattle. Pick that up. Oh, and there's an excellent event at Generation Records on Sunday, November 5th. This is an event celebrating 30 years of slip by Quicksand. And the event features Walter Schreifels, Norman Brannan, Melinda Beck, John Marcus, and Iodine's own Casey. They will be there talking about the band and the quicksand book and everything else. I'm going to go to that for sure. So check that out if you live in New York City. That's November 5th at Generation Records in New York City. Also, there are some Darling Fire shows coming up October 19th at Tua Lingua in North Charleston, South Carolina. October 21st at Monufest in Tampa, Florida. October 22nd at Rain Dogs in Jacksonville, Florida. October 26th at Born Free Pub in Tampa. And that's with Hey Thanks and Madball and a bunch of other great bands. And October 27th at Flickr in Athens, Georgia. More info on those will be posted very soon. And finally, Hey Thanks are playing Fest on October 27th. That's at How Bazaar with an excellent lineup of bands. Check it out if you're down there. Also, don't forget to support this month's sponsor evil greed evil greed is an online store and merchandise company 
based in Berlin, Germany. It's a carefully selected and curated roster of bands and labels. Every band you have ever known and loved is distributed by Evil Greed. Let's just take a look. I'm going to look through the website here and list off some bands that they distribute. Knocked Loose, Jesus Peace, Isis, Judiciary, Alceste, Death, Drain, Be Well, Bad Brains, Scowl, Soft Kill, Soul Glow, Electric Wizard, Fucked Up, Mutoid Man, Godflesh, Gorilla Biscuits, Chat Pile. The list goes on and on and on. If you're in a band and you're not being distributed by Evil Greed, just end the band, hang it up, get all your merch, throw it out. It's over, it's done, it's pointless. Evil Greed is the online marketplace for bands and labels to sell their merch. So if you're in a band, this is where you want to be. And for the rest of us, this is the place to buy all the latest and greatest merch. They have very fair, very cheap, and very fast worldwide shipping, especially to the USA. Check out the full line of merchandise at evilgreed.net and follow them on Instagram at evil underscore greed. You'll be the first to find out about all the latest merch drops. Okay, so let's talk music recommendations. Now, I hope you've all been following the excellent band End that features Brendan from Counterparts and Greg Thomas, who's been on our show. Excellent band, relatively new. They've been around since about uh, 2017 or so. I checked out their split EP with Cult Leader. It's called Gather and Mourn. I really like the songs on that. They've got two songs on that. Also, End has a new LP coming out October 27th via Closed Casket Activities. It's called The Sin of Human Frailty. And there's a couple singles out right now. The Sin of Human Frailty and Gaping Wounds of the Earth. Check it out if you're into that new modern vicious metalcore sound, right? That drop C, ugly, awesome stuff. I love it. I can't get enough of it and end do it very, very well. Also, how about this? How about this? Dare I say, end has the best modern breakdown in hardcore. In the song, Necessary Death, listen to it. Listen to the breakdown in that song and try to tell me there's something better out there. I mean, come on. This is really, really good stuff. So that's my recommendation for the week. I will add a song to the New Scene 2023 Spotify playlist. Check that out on Spotify. Follow it. I add all of my personal recommendations, all the bands that we've had on the show. It's a great one-stop shop to hear all the bands associated with the show. All right, so listen, check back in with me in segment three. I have a new review from Apple Podcasts. I'll read that. I have some Spotify feedback. I have some messages from people. I'm going to start reading the reviews in the end of the show, you know, because I figure each week we can do a community thing at the end and read and read feedback from all of the listeners and different messages that come in and reviews We'll do that. There's a couple other things going on I'll talk about. We'll cover everything. But right now, we are going to speak to Dan Yemen of Paint It Black and Open City. Enjoy. This is the American fable, the land of Cain and Abel. Stuck with the 
All right. We are here now with Dan Yemen. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing great, Dan. And you know what? It's great to have you here. I feel like I've been saying this a lot lately, Dan, but you might be the busiest man in our scene. Lifetime, Kid Dynamite, Paint It Black has a new release coming out. Your first in 10 years. Open City just came out with a record this year. You've done it all. You're doing it all. Oh, not to mention on top of all of that, you somehow managed to become a clinical psychologist. That might be a first in our scene. I don't know. We're going to figure it out. We're going to cover all that, Dan. But first, I want to ask you, how are you doing today? Today, I'm doing all right. I'm a little stressed, uh, but, you know, that's probably par for the course. Thanks for asking. Of course. Of course. You're a parent, right? How many kids? You have one kid? Do you have more than one? Two kids, an 11-year-old and an almost 14-year-old. Oh wow. So you're you're just you're just getting hit from every side. Bands, career, children. Yeah, getting hit. I don't know. I, in terms of demands from my time, yeah, I guess that's Yes. I guess that's right. Um doesn't feel like getting hit most of the time. Although today <laughs> today started off like a sitcom and I was the punchline of the joke, but um but nor today felt like getting hit. But normally it just feels like uh Maybe I'm overcommitted, overextended. What happened today? Um, yeah, I was driving carpool this morning, and it's not—it's mundane. It's not interesting, but every street I turned down was closed for construction, which is also why I'm late coming back. Um, you know, so I'm trying to pick this other family's kids up, and I'm late, and I turn down another street to get away from this one street that's closed, and then like every street I try to turn down for the next six blocks is closed. And oh, no. then I spilled coffee all over myself. Oh. <laughs> um, so it was like, uh, it's not interesting, but it was probably funny to watch if you weren't me. If there was like a, a mundane family movie about your life, that would be the opening. I could see all that. Just like one bad thing after another. That would be, be the title sequence. Yeah. <laughs> you live in Philadelphia? I do. Where at? I uh, like West Philly. I don't know how well you know the city, but... Uh, Pretty close to where um, where the universities are and everything. Cool. Yeah, I'm a former Philadelphia native. I lived there from 2003 until 2012, so I have much love for the city. Oh, cool. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I'm in Brooklyn now, but uh, hey, I make it back there semi-often. Awesome. It's a great place to live. Absolutely. You've been there since 1992, correct? That's right, yeah. I know in your early life, you lived in New Jersey for a while. How did you land in Philadelphia? What was going on? I moved here for graduate school, and I stayed. Ah, I see. You got your master's and doctoral degrees from Widener University. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. So, as you're in graduate school, if I have my timeline correct here, I guess lifetime is going on at the same time. Yes? Yeah, that's when lifetime is happening. So, talk about the beginning of lifetime. How old are you around when this band started? How did it come together? 22, and it came together as uh, as things did at the time, which is that I put a flyer up in uh, the record store, my you know my local record store, which was Vintage Vinyl in uh, sort of Woodbridge, but I think technically Fords, New Jersey. Oh, yeah. I remember that store. Yeah, it was on Route 1, 
uh, right off the Garden State Parkway, and it's about 15 minutes from where I, I lived at the time. So you put up a flyer in Vintage Vinyl. Who answers? Who answers? Rob Fish from Release. No. And uh, yeah, Rob Fish answers. And um, yeah, and he we had a conversation, and I had a, a bunch of songs I demoed uh, on a four track, and I was like, if you want to like mess around with what like ideas and put them over, record them along with these songs, it's fine. I lent him my four track and uh, and my microphone, and then the tape with these you know five or six songs I demoed, and um. And then I, you know, I didn't hear from Rob for a few months. <laughs> I didn't get a hold of him. Uh, it turns out he had had to move down to South Jersey and and didn't, you know, it was before cell phones, so he didn't have a, a phone. But then I heard from Ari because he had passed my name and number on to Ari. Mm-hmm. They were good friends from high school. So Lifetime comes together. Now Lifetime is a pretty unique band uh, in the scene at the time, and I'm thinking like you know, 96, 97, when the records are out. Uh, I got into the scene shortly after that. There was a big crossover thing happening, a lot of technical metalcore bands, and uh, emo was starting to pop off, like the more poppy emo thing, piebald, get up kids, wave is forming, all that stuff. How did Lifetime fit in at that time? Like, how was the reception? Because, you know, it it didn't have like that California pop punk sounds so much with like the the super fast horse gallop beat. I mean, you guys did that, but you did it differently. And some songs were more hardcore. Some songs were like poppier. It was it, it was pretty unique for the time. Yeah, I mean, we were you know we were. How is it received? Is the question? Yeah. Um. I mean, we started putting out records in 1991, so it was a long road, I would say. Um. And the the stuff you're describing is, I think, happening sort of on the, at the tail end of like when lifetime's coming to a close. Um, right. I think that initially people didn't really know what to make of us. I mean, I think the reference points for hardcore with sung vocals were, you know, there weren't there weren't many reference points when we started out. Um, you know, I think there was like a, a little bit of Descendants and Dag Nasty and maybe reason to believe was a reference point from California. Um, but so I think that in some ways, um, I mean, we fit in with our peers who were just playing like fast, screamy, hardcore. Um, we were all sort of grew up in the New Jersey and New York hardcore scene. And, and those are the kind of bands that we played with. But I think that um, it wasn't an easy fit at first, I would say. But I think, you know, we stuck around long enough to have our own, I find our own lane, I guess, in the midst of all of the other stuff that was happening and all the ways that hardcore and punk and underground music were evolving. Yeah, 91 to 97. That's so many eras of hardcore. You have the end of one straight edge hardcore thing happening and the beginning of another and all the different melodic, more melodic hardcore bands that you're talking about popping up. That's uh, That's quite a quite a long time a lot of different eras of hardcore yeah a lot of things happen in those six years so you managed to uh, balance grad school and the band that whole time yeah i have to be honest with you when i when i because we started the band in the fall of 1990 and when i moved to philly in the fall of 92 i thought i thought it was i thought that was going to be it i was I, I assumed i'd have no time for music and i, I don't know 
there was no sort of deliberate decision. It just turned out that, uh, that I was far from being done with it. <laughs> I don't remember ever making, I don't remember ever making the decision. Um, oh, I can pull this off or this is, I just assumed I wouldn't be able to. And then I just, we just kept going and I just got by on a, not a lot of sleep, a lot of, a lot of commutes, late night commutes back and forth between Philadelphia and New Brunswick. A lot of, a lot of busy weekends trying, trying to do reading on the road, driving the shows, a lot. But um, yeah, I don't know how it, it all got balanced, but somehow it did. How were your grades? The grades were good, better than they'd ever been, actually. Wow. Um, yeah, because I'm thinking like, <laughs> I'm thinking if that was me, I, uh, the grades would have probably been suffering. Yeah, I, don't, I, I think I got much better at like being a student. I think I was not a very good student when I was younger, sort of figuring it out in college and then really figured it out in grad school. This was really, I, I figured out how to be really efficient, which unfortunately is not a skill I've held on to. <laughs> or it's, at least it's, at, at least it's atrophied in, in middle age. I don't know. I, I looking at uh, your whole resume in front of me here, I, I feel like you have to be somewhat efficient. Yeah, I guess a lot of things get done and then a lot of things end up, I miss a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Every, every weekend I make a big to-do list for myself, Right. Uh, this past weekend, I had nine things on it, and I got eight done, which is uh, pretty not the case usually. Do you do you ever do that? List, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, it's kind of the bane of my existence. So lifetime continues on. You know, I read uh, an old interview with Norman Brannon before, where he said he would call you guys a rock band, and you would not be happy with that. Is that true? Uh, I would not. I would not identify with that at all. Um, that's funny that he that he said that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I know I don't. I wouldn't think. Of, I, I mean, I guess if all music with guitars and drums and bass is rock, I guess. But you know, we're a, we're a hardcore punk band, or we were a hardcore punk band. Uh, that's kind of the long and short of it. But I guess you could call us whatever you like. So lifetime continues strong until about ninety-seven, correct? Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay, so what happens? Why does the band come to an end? I think tour really, tour really wrecked us. You know, and some people wanted to be on the road, and some people didn't. And I think there was a lot of resentment running both ways between people that wanted to be on the road, people that wanted to be home. I think. There's also, you know, I have to, I have to take some responsibility. I don't know how much I've talked about this, but um, it, the the year, I guess, was the the year that was uh, ninety six to ninety seven. Uh, I took a year off school to tour full time, and um, I think, you know, it became clear to everybody that I was going to go back and finish. Like I had, an, I wasn't just going to drop out of school. Um, and I think maybe uh, you know some some people some guys in the band had allowed themselves to believe that I wouldn't go back or that I wouldn't go back just then. But you know, like I couldn't really. I was kind of pushing my luck taking a year off, and I, so I think that had something to do with it as well. I had to take responsibility for that. So you always had it in your mind 
that you were going to finish school and enter into some kind of career. You weren't like, oh, I'm just going to do music full time and that's it. Yeah, no, I, was never, I mean, I was doing music pretty full time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I was never going to just do just like tour and write songs and record and tour and write songs and record. But, um, not long term, at least. But, you know, when we started the band, that, that wasn't a thing that anybody did in, in the hardcore scene. Like, just do their band full time. Yeah, I guess that wasn't more so much of a thing until later. Yeah, the first people we knew that, like, just started touring full time were the Bouncing Souls, like, from our community. But, uh, but it, you know, it would be insane to go to grad school for four years and then not finish. Right. Where does that drive come from? I'm talking about in terms of your career and being focused on grad school, did your parents want you to get an education? Is that just something that's ingrained in you? Where does that come from? It's a, uh, probably in my family. Education was probably one of the primary values uh, in my family. So it wasn't, expe- it wasn't expected of me, but, um, but there was precedent. Both my parents, I went to graduate school, college and graduate school. So it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a strange idea or a stretch or like, oh, wow, I wonder if I could do that someday. All that, the, all those voices were more about music. Like, I wonder if I could be in a band that played shows and maybe put out a seven inch and maybe, maybe play out of state. Like, you know, that stuff was, was, there was no precedent in my world for that. Yeah, I hear you on that. Like, uh, I never did the full time band thing where I just tour full time or go out there, try to go out there full time. And that's all I do. I've always worked, I've always had to work. So that's just, ingrained in me from my family i guess because my siblings are like that too yeah i think if i just did music full-time i wouldn't still make it still be making good music that's my guess (laughs) that's a good point so lifetime comes to an end i guess around or 97 or was it 98 somewhere around there 97 on tour so when does it happen what's the conversation Mm, i mean it's probably like a series of conversations uh in the van, but also like a series of avoided conversations, probably. Mm. You know, so we were like, you know, we were communicating like like dumb young men. You know, we were we weren't all talking together, all five of us. We were having side conversations and alliances, and you know, so there's a lot. Of, there was a lot of avoidance and a lot of conflict avoidance and a lot of indirect communication. You know, it's a thing in in, uh, in psychology, we call it triangulation, when there's like a conversation that needs to be happening between two people, and like a third person is kind of recruited into into the dynamic to sort of diffuse conflict or avoid dealing with things directly. And basically, it's just an obstacle to direct communication and to healthy communication. And there was a lot of that. So once it's over, are you guys not on great terms? What's the story? Um, at the beginning, like when we first stopped, yeah, I don't think we're on great. I mean, none of us hated each other, but I, I think it was tense. You know, some of us, um, between some of us more than others. Um, but you know, that, that stuff, my relationships with those guys were, are, were and are very important to me. And, um, I, you know, those relations, we repaired those relationships in my, in my experience, what felt like pretty easily. Over like over like the next couple of years, you know, I, I had nothing but nothing but love for for those guys. It's like right right afterwards, there was a lot of there was just a lot of bitterness and hard feelings. 
And were you okay with it ending since you knew you were going back to grad school? Like, was that part of your plan to to not be doing it at some point? No, not at all. I, I you wanted well, to keep going? Oh yeah. I mean, that's why I started Kid Dynamite immediately. I was I felt interrupted. Yeah. So talk about that. Lifetime ends. Kid Dynamite starts. What's your plan? Like, what do you want to accomplish? Because obviously, Kid Dynamite sounds different. It's like faster, more aggressive. Is that what you wanted to go for? Yeah, I just wanted to. I wanted to have a little more latitude for um, aggression. I felt in a lifetime always felt pretty aggressive to me, but I wanted to have a little more latitude. Like there were certain things that we couldn't, like straight up screaming was a thing we couldn't do in lifetime. We're just, you know, it's not like I was missing it when I was in the band, but I wanted to have a little more latitude for both melody and aggression and Kid Dynamite. And when you set out, because, uh, you know, Lifetime sounded different, Kid Dynamite sounded different. It's aggressive and punk and hardcore, but it also has, like, the classic punk sensibilities of, like, Sex Pistols and those type of bands. Like, when you set out, are you are you intentionally trying to do something a little different or is that just how it shakes out? Different than what? Than like everything else going on at the time because Kid Dynamite, again, I think stood out from a lot of bands at the time. I mean, I was never really interested in doing what what was going on at the time. Um, right. I was a little, that's like a little, I guess, too safe for me, but certainly I think we had it, we had the direct, the prime directive was that it was going to be a snottier affair uh it's funny that you referenced the the sex pistols because i don't really think we were directly invoking like first wave british punk although i love love that stuff and it was foundational for me but uh you know when we started lifetime if you had asked me like what what's the first band you're thinking of as an influence i would have said Dagnasty. and if you had said if you had asked me the same question with kid dynamite i probably would have said like the first Bad Brains record and the first Circle Jerks record. It's like touchstones. So we had a very strong debut record with Kid Dynamite. We're out there. We're doing things. Like, how was it for you? I mean, did you want to just be doing this full time? Were you Were you done with school? What was going on? I did want to do it full time for at least a while. Like, I wanted to because I finished school and uh, and then I was doing my postdoctoral training, and we were like. We were like rehearsing obsessively, finding a singer, recording a record. Um, and then, you know, my plan was as soon as I finished my postdoctoral training, I was going to stop and just because then, you know, there'd be nothing I'd left hanging. And then I just wanted to, to tour full time just because I not because I so much like wanted to make a living off music. That's always seemed to be um, and that did not ever seem like the the way to go about continuing to make memorable music. But I, I just did want to, I did want to just like make records and play shows, make records and play shows, you know? Um, and so, yeah, we, um, it was exciting because when Kid Dynamite started playing shows and, and, um, you know, it was basically what, what had taken a lifetime, like five years to achieve in terms of just people being stoked on it kind of came about pretty instantly. So that was exciting. Yeah. What do you think it was? Was everybody just older and more seasoned and knew what to do? You mean the people in the band? Yeah. There's that, but I also think the scene was different. You know, like Lifetime basically broke up when 
when we were becoming a big band. And so I think, you know, people were, people were bummed they missed it. Yeah. Um, there's this whole wave of people that got into punk and hardcore, like right when Lifetime was coming to a close. So yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we knew what we were doing and we knew how to get stuff. We knew how to get music put out. We knew how to get shows booked, but I think the scene was paying attention. The punk and hardcore scene in the Northeast at least was paying attention in a different way. For sure. I'm one of those people who came in right in uh, the tail end of Lifetime in 98, and there was a lot of big things happening at that time. Yeah. And, you know, when we started out, you know, first, and in the first, like, easily four years of Lifetime's existence, that people didn't even know what to think of us. They were like, hey, I don't know, are they a hardcore band? I don't think they're a hardcore band. Um, I guess they're kind of a punk band, but I don't know. You know, and it's really important for people to, I think, categorize things. Even back then. Yeah, more and maybe even more so, in the hardcore scene at least. Yeah, you know what? I feel like that was, well, it was certainly more of a thing when uh, I was first coming up, because there was like real hardcore versus fake hardcore, and all the stuff I liked was deemed fake hardcore by certain people, and it was, everything was very, uh, you know, there was a lot of litmus tests in hardcore, and I feel like that's not as much of a thing nowadays. I hope not. Really. Yeah. I mean... People just seem to like whatever now. Yeah, it's like I was talking to actually. You brought up Norm. I was talking about to Norm about this uh, recently, and you know, it's like the lit the idea of like I don't know the idea of telling people like I'm not gonna you can't tell a bunch of people that are like they're like that they're not hardcore. That's for if that's where they come from and that's what they're they feel like they're making. Like what do you? I don't know. It just seems kind of crazy. Um, and you know, Ron Kim says it's not where you're from, it's where you're at. But I kind of feel like it's both at the same time. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that it's the spirit more than the sound necessarily. Yeah. Like you could, cons- you could consider Fugazi a hardcore band. You could, cons- you could consider Fiddlehead a hardcore band. It's, it's, I think it's about like the spirit and what you're saying. Yeah. So Kid Dynamite continues on strong through the late 90s. And uh, I was a big fan at the time. I always remember a positive reception to the band, no matter who you were playing with. And you played with a lot of different people. You played one of my first shows. I think it was Endeavor's last show at The Melody. And Dillinger's Escape Plan, I think, played that as well. Yeah. We, we kind of made sense playing with pretty much anyone. Which yeah. Is, which is cool. That's one of the things I really loved about, about Kid Dynamite. So we continued on strong until the second record. Shorter, Faster, Louder is the second record. I remember that that getting a, a pretty good reception. I even remember some reviews saying that you're poised for big things and all of this, and then certain people being upset that maybe you could go mainstream because that was the attitude at the time in 1999, right? So, th- I mean, things are, things are looking positive, right? Yeah, I don't know if I've ever imagined uh, being in the mainstream, but... Uh... Not a, not a goal, but so I'm not sure really how other people were perceiving it. We might have been broken up by the time Shorter, Faster, Louder came out. I'm not sure. Oh, really? Yeah. Or maybe we broke up just afterwards, but I know things were running hot. We had, I had to break, I had to cancel a bunch of tours when we broke up. Same thing with Lifetime, actually. I had to cancel a Canadian and a, and a European tour 
uh, one lifetime broke up. And I think something, I think something similar with, with Kid Dynamite. So what happened with Kid Dynamite? I read that uh, Jason left because he wanted to go back to film school. Is that true? He wanted to finish film school? Uh, I, I think that he wanted a lot of things that um, I think just weren't, uh, weren't congruent with touring full time, which is fine. You know? Yeah. The idea, when I think about it now and I look back and I think like that I was trying to screen for people that were committed to like just being on the road six months a year, like as if you could, as if you could know that before you did it. Right. <laughs> it's like absurd. But back then I was just thinking, I was, I was thinking about it in a very black and white way. Like you said, this is what you wanted. So like, here we go. But I don't think anybody has, is, I don't think anyone's prepared for what it's like to be on tour for three months. No. And things change. You might want it one day and then the next month you might not. It- exactly. Things change. People change, especially when you're young. Like, so it's, a, it's absurd that I thought I could control any of that. So yeah, you know, Jason did what he had to do and I'm glad for him. And to be honest, I don't remember the specifics of what it was he, he wanted to do and needed to do, but it just came as a surprise. Was it disappointing? Yeah, I was ter- ter- terribly disappointed. I was crushed. And then I felt really defeated. Like, yeah, I got home from Lifetime Tour and started working on Kid Dynamite like that week. And but this at this time, I was like, ah, I think I don't know if I have it in me to like start another band. I, um, I felt pretty. De- I was disappointed. I was defeated. I was angry. All that stuff. Um, but you know, I think um, Dave and I were not easy people to be in a band with. I'm going to be honest. Why is that? You got uh, two control freaks in one band. <laughs> one is bad enough. How does uh, how does your control f- freakism manifest? Are you like saying, "Oh, sing this," or "Here's some lyrics," or like like how does it manifest for you? Back then or now? Now I'm now I'm I don't I, my my uh, the only thing I try to control now is my tendency towards control. Yeah. What about back then? Um. I just had a very specific vision for what the band should sound like. I didn't tell, I think maybe there were a couple of times when I was like, I think the vocal should go like this. I didn't tell him what to sing. And, uh, but, but I had a very, uh, I was like, I think I made it, I probably made a tape of like all the influences that I wanted the band to encompass. Yeah. Um, and I was like this in this range, you know, from here, there's, there's like 20, 30 songs on this mixtape, like in this range. It's what we're going to sound like. No, I, uh, I, I, I've been told I'm a control freak as well, and I, I really try not to, uh, but it's hard. Yeah, but it's also like it's pretty unhealthy. So um, I can't imagine it was like that much fun. <laughs> right. Because um, Jason was a little younger than you guys too, yeah, right? He, he was significantly younger. And... I was, I was, um, I was 30. I think Jason was 21, maybe. Dave was close in age to me. Yeah. I think Steve was even younger. Yeah. And when you're, when you're 21, 31 is, is like 40 years old. I remember being 28 years old and my band member was 34 and I was like, oh my God, he's so old. But you know, once you get past 35, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. You're just dead. (laughs) Yeah. Kid Dynamite has a 10-second song on the second record, Two for Flinching. 
I love this. Because like I write a song and if it's under three minutes, I'm like, oh, it's not long enough. It's not good. But in 10 seconds, you managed to craft the perfect song. Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. Would you like intentionally write it that short or is that just how it ended up? How does that work? I was very into the idea of, um, this is going to maybe sound pretentious, but uh, combining song craft and brevity. I love the idea that you could have a like a, a verse, bridge, and chorus in 10 seconds. For the longest time, I was like, if if I if we write a song over three minutes, we should we're done. We should be done. We should pull the plug. <laughs> yeah, I I like that approach. I think that's inspirational because Kid Dynamite does it. Lifetime has some songs like that. Certainly, Paint It Black. You know, a lot of songs under a minute that are super impactful. So I think it's a a good example that it, you don't need to necessarily follow some exact formula. Yeah, it's good that you bring that up because I'd kind of forgotten that. That was actually part of the mission statement with Kid Dynamite is I wanted to be able to write really short songs. I mean, the opening track on the first Circle Jerks record is Deny Everything. It's really short. It's perfect. So Kid Dynamite comes to an end and you took a little break from music after this, yes? Yeah, yeah. A couple years of not doing music. I think I was writing music, but and imagining... I was writing music and imagining doing a project that was just a studio project where I did uh, just had different singers on each song. Was that the plan? Like, were you going to do that at some point? I thought I was. Yeah. I know how that is with bands because I've read that, uh, you know, you started Paint It Black with yourself in mind as the singer and primary songwriter because you were just sick of bands ending because somewhere because someone else left and i've been in that situation a million times where i'm putting in all this work and you know just i want it to be everything and then someone decides they're done and then that's it the band is gone and i have no control over it yeah it's really frustrating um i think as i've gotten older i just kind of realized that the the whole notion of control is is kind of absurd i think in a lot of ways painted black came out of that because i had a like a, a pretty serious medical uh, issue. And, you know, what that, what that demonstrates is that you're not in control of anything. How old are you when, uh, that happened? The stroke? 32. And so at this point, you're pretty much just focused on your career, right? As a psychologist. I was working like 60 hours a week. It was insane. What did you do during that time? Did you like build your own practice? Were you working somewhere? What was the story? I was working full time somewhere and also building my own practice and like in the evenings. So, okay. When did the stroke happen? Where were you? Like what, what was the story? I was in the office. I was with someone. I was in a therapy session. Oh, really? Yeah. And what happens? Like, do you blank out and pass out? Like what happens when the stroke actually happens? I'll tell you. Well, first of all, actually, there was some, I was having some symptoms leading up to it. Um, I basically, um, I was like feeling weird. I got out of the gym and I was feeling weird and um, like really weird. And then I, I took a shower and drank a lot of water. I figured I was dehydrated. It's like the first really hot day of the year, it was April, end of April. And, um, and I felt a little better after I like drank, you know, six glasses of water and took a shower. And I, but I was, I realized, you know, something felt off and I was trying to figure out what it was. And what I realized is that I was numb. The entire left side of my body was numb. Like literally, like if you drew a line 
down the midline, like straight down from the top of my head, down between my eyes, the middle of my nose, like all the, everything on the left to the left of that was numb. Like, uh, I could feel like, you know, like if you punched me or poked me, I could feel the pressure, but if you pinched, I couldn't feel the, the, the bite of it. Like I couldn't feel a needle or like a pinch. I could feel pressure. Um, and that was weird. And I scheduled an appointment with a doctor and then I was in a, a session and I started slurring my words. And, uh, you know, we have to take, uh, neuropsychology and physiology classes in, in, in grad school. And, and I, you know, I just, in the moment, I just put two and two together. I was like, okay, I'm numb down one side. That's neurological. And now I'm slurring words. Um, and so I, I kind of knew something was, I, I kind of knew what was happening. Um, and I, excuse, you know, I literally, I got up, I said, I'm sorry, I'm feeling ill. And I excused myself. And I told the, um, the administrative support person to like, cancel the rest of my uh, day and to reschedule the person I was with. And then I called campus security. And um, I told them I needed to be taken to the hospital. And the only hospital they they would take me to was the closest one, which is not a good hospital. Um, yeah. And uh, one of my colleagues just said he would drive me down to Penn, which was like maybe 15 minutes on the highway or whatever. Um, that's the best hospital in the area. And uh, which is funny because now I could like walk into the street, lay down and roll, roll downhill to, to the Penn emergency room. But like, um, <laughs> but then, you know, we were way up in North Philadelphia and he, he, um, I got in his car and he drove me, um, I figured if I called an ambulance too, they'd take me to a hospital that I might not want to go to. Um, so my colleague Robert's driving me to Penn. And I don't know if you remember from when you lived here, but there's a thing called Penn Relays, which is like this big track and field event where like every high school and college track team in the Eastern like time zone comes to Penn for like a week of competitions in their stadium. And so what I didn't realize it, it was Penn Relays. So like, the exit for University of Pennsylvania Hospital was closed. And so he, he comes, to the, comes around to the next as to get exit. And we come up around campus through the backside. And we just pull up into the main street, you know, and we're like five blocks from the emergency room. And the street is just clogged with buses from all these schools. And I'm sitting there in this guy's in the passenger seat. And I'm watching the light go from red to green to red to green to red to green. Oh. And finally, I was just like, this. I, I mean, I literally remember thinking I'm going to die in the passenger seat in this car. Um, so I just got up. I said, thanks for the ride. I got out of the car and walked the five oh blocks to the emergency room. Um, yeah. And so that's the story. Wow. When you actually get in there, what happens? Do they, do they have to do surgery? Like what? No, but when you come in with those symptoms, they fast track you. Like you're just like, oh, you're going right back. Um, no, I didn't need surgery. I had it. They had they put, they had me up for an MRI pretty instantly though, and I was half expecting. I on one hand, I knew what was happening because I knew the symptoms. But on the other hand, I was like, they're going to come back and tell me I'm overreacting and there's nothing there. Uh, but that was not that was not the case. That was not the case. Yeah. So. They said you have a, a you're having a stroke. You had a stroke. Wow, yeah. that's intense. So it was after this that you decided you were going to get back into music, right? Yeah, I got lucky. Like I didn't have any permanent 
I didn't have any real permanent uh, damage. Yeah, that is lucky. Because, I mean, things happen a lot, right? You, I don't know, you can lose uh, some feel, you can lose some feeling in your face or you could like slow down or talk differently. There's a lot of different things that can happen, right? I think my speech was affected a little bit. It's, I like, it's little, but not in any way that anybody else seems to notice. I see. I think it's, um, it takes a little more effort to enunciate things really clearly and sharply. I was so grateful to be alive at the time. I don't think I really reckoned with that for a few years. I think really even noticed, like allowed myself to notice it. How soon after this do you get Pain at Black started? And what inspired you, like what specifically inspired you to want to jump back into music? Uh, I mean, gratitude, I guess. Yeah. Like it was, it's like one of that one of those cartoons when someone's been like shipwrecked or stranded at sea and they get back and they like literally kiss the ground. Oh right, that's what painted black was. So how soon after the stroke did you start piecing it together and working on this? I don't know. It was sometime that year. Uh, probably certainly within like four or five months. Were you worried at all? Because if I almost had a stroke. And then I was like screaming in a band. I'd be worried that I was going to like pop something in my head or something. Well, I mean, uh, was I worried? I don't know. I mean, I don't think I've ever stopped being worried, really. I see. It's like always looking over my shoulder. What are you going to do? Like wrap yourself in Nerf and just like stay inside? That's no way to live. No, it's not living. I I try to avoid being reckless. I would, you know... After that, I never got on my bike without a helmet. So uh, Paint It Black got started in the early 2000s. How did it feel to be fronting a band? I imagine that had to be like super fun. Uh, it's like actually kind of weird and stressful and way harder than playing guitar. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's like uh, you're the center of attention in a way that's kind of unfamiliar. Um, and it's, it was, I found it more physically taxing it was new and it was different it was you know it was, of course it was exciting but i was excited to be writing lyrics i think too yeah and uh paint it black has a pretty heavy political focus is that part of you like are you pretty politically conscious and outspoken yeah yeah um i've always been most comfortable with punk as like protest music where does that come from how did that develop i don't know man i mean i grew up in the reagan years listening to hardcore <laughs> that'll do it um yeah i don't want, i don't want to give I, the long answer is like a little tedious but if if that if it's not apparent what that means then just you know do some do some research reagan was like a catalyzing figure in in the 80s and you know he's the on the cover of a lot of records and his picture was on a lot of flyers and the, my first uh, hardcore show was reagan youth a lot of bad things started during uh, yeah. the Reagan years, and you know, especially in terms of like economic, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Economic uh, inequity, disparities, and yeah. in- inequalities, and everything. Yeah, exactly. Like that was the the that was sort of the I think where the mission of the Republican Party to isolate wealth in a very small uh, segment of the population. That's where I think that that really coalesced. During the Reagan years. 
Yeah, I I get it. I I didn't even really think about politics at all until I got involved in the hardcore scene, and that kind of opened my eyes. That was the beginning of opening my eyes to see what's really going on, and I'm pretty grateful to the scene for that. Yeah, I think it all happened at the same time. Like I was, you know, a high school student in a very conservative town, and like reading the news every day, and like getting into hardcore punk at the same time. There's, and there's a lot of crazy stuff that just like happened in a normal day in high school and during those years. Yeah, it's, you're, you're kind of indoctrinated with it without even realizing it. I didn't, when I was young, I didn't pay attention to politics at all, right? And I grew up in a pretty conservative, uh, pretty much all white town, lower middle class. And I didn't pay attention to politics at all. And if there was like another candidate in, like if there was a Green Party candidate in the mix, like against the Democrat and the Republican, mm-hmm. I'd be like, oh, that's stupid. Who's he? Like without even knowing anything, you're just indoctrinated with that. Or right. I don't know, like people would talk about how the government was against us. And I'd be like, wait, why is our own president against us? What do you mean? And like, I, I couldn't even conceive of like what was different things that was actually going on. And, but of course, with age, hopefully you, uh, you start to see all that. The first thing that I remember really sort of galvanizing me to really think about politics um, and, you know, domestic, like American foreign policy and domestic policy and economic policy is like um, Reagan's intervention in Central America and sort of during the Cold War. Um, And that, that when I was reading about that, this sort of he was that, that it was like that we would we, the U.S., the CIA, whatever, would interfere in, you know, dem- in democratically elected uh, governments um, if the if the government was socialist. Uh, we would, um, you know, find a way to undermine that in a way that certainly isn't wasn't legal in terms of international law, mm-hmm. um, and certainly wasn't moral or ethical. Um, and when I started to become aware of of uh, what we were doing in specifically El Salvador and Nicaragua uh, in the 80s. That was when I was sort of my disgust with the right in America really, um, really started to coalesce. And then that was the same time, the, the, the alliance between the Republican Party and the evangelical like fundamentalist um, community started to coalesce as well. Well, there's this uh, organization called the Moral Majority that was sort of the embodiment of that, and that's a that's still a strong uh, alliance today. Yeah, yeah. You know what it was for me? The financial crisis in 2008, oh. and how that whole thing was handled. Yeah. I remember seeing a paper, and they're like, "We Obama has to sign this 700 billion dollar bailout bill, or we're all in big trouble." He has to sign it, and I remember seeing that and being like, "Oh my God, I hope he signs it." Or we're in big trouble. And he signed it. And then all the CEOs of banks just wrote themselves giant checks. And after that, and then there was a documentary about it a couple years later, the one Matt Damon narrated. Mm -hmm. And after that, I pretty much lost all faith in uh, the people who represent us on either side. Yeah. It's a sad state of affairs. No doubt. But paint it black. Not a sad state of affairs. This is an excellent band that you are fronting. And we're starting out strong in the early 2000s, right? Again, uh, I remember you guys starting out strong. I remember the live shows being very raucous. 
end again, kind of a band doing something different from a lot that was happening at the time. Paint It Black has that classic hardcore punk feel. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm struggling to sort of really recall what the trends were in hardcore at the time we were starting out. So I just make the music I'm interested in hearing. That's a good way to do things. Yeah. And of course, I think the band has um, changed a lot over the years. It's become a thing that's like sort of um, grounded in the the traditions of hardcore punk, but um, aiming not to be constricted by them. So what's your approach in that case? Like if, if, you're, if you're operating within those boundaries, but also don't want to be specifically defined by them, what, like what is something that you'll do differently? I think that um, what happens is that there's no, none of our musical influences, the, do- the door is open to any of our musical influences. You know, they, I think they manifest in ways that sound congruent with hardcore punk, but they're coming from all over the map. And, and uh, Open City is different but similar in that, like, it is, I, I think we were formed to pay our respects to a specific aesthetic in, like, underground punk, but it's the, it incorporates sort of everything that we find interesting. Yeah. You know, I don't, it's, but it's sort of embedded in this, in the, the, I guess the tropes of, of hardcore punk so that it doesn't sound, I don't think it sounds like people shoving a bunch of styles together. I think it sounds like a punk band that, you know, sometimes plays fast and, um, but you know, we're, we're influenced by like noise and kraut rock and post punk and Brit pop, even Broadway. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think that's uh, how you get some of the most interesting music, is if you pull from any influence. Like, uh, I'm putting together a band now, right? And it's kind of heavier, but I'll pull from, like, Blue Tip or Jets to Brazil or bands that don't sound anything like what we're doing, and then I'll take that and try to put it into what we're doing. And I think if you do that and pull from a wide variety of influences, you can come up with some really interesting results. Yeah. And sometimes I don't even know, like, I couldn't even identify exactly where it's coming from until afterward. Yeah. And then sometimes it's like, you know, one of us will be really working on a song and somebody else will bring an idea about how we execute something or how we transition um, from one place to another. And it's like, oh, it's coming from, oh, I see. That's like a Jesus lizard thing there. Or like, oh, it's like a Fugazi transition, like a Fugazi thing. Or like, a, or even like a what, what would like, what would they have done on the first Nirvana album? Like moving from this, this vibe to this vibe, you know, like, but it's not, it's never deliberate, but it's more like noticing after the fact, like, Oh, I see where that came from. So I don't know. It's, it's nice to be able to make music with like-minded people and have not have any of those doors closed in terms of where, where we pull influence from. Absolutely. Paint It Black really re- retains the ethos of a, uh, DIY hardcore band too. I've seen you play some interesting gigs over the years. There was a show you played out in the street in front of Sailor Jerry. And then there was a, I think you played a house show in like, what was it? Somewhere around 2013. And I remember seeing video of that and the place was just packed. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of our process is non-musical, just like the way we execute everything. Um, 
like how we do shows is like always a process of curating. And if we do, I genuinely think of, of merchandise as a distraction from, from, you know, what the band is about. So if we do it, it's very much a fundraising effort to address something that's going on at the time that we're, that we feel really strongly about. So if you're doing like a merch drop or something like that, it's not necessarily for you guys. There may be a charity involved. Yeah, always. I like that. It's a good way to give back. Yeah. Now, Paint It Black has your first release in 10 years. Famine, the LP. Yes, this is coming up. Yeah, a 12-inch. Oh, a 12-inch. Okay. Well, still very exciting, but talk about this record a little bit. Where have you guys been? What has been going on? How did we start uh, deciding to release this record? I mean, I think we've been working on it in one capacity or the other since 2019. And then, you know, nobody wants to talk about the pandemic, so we're not going to talk about it. But uh, obviously, things slowed down. And we, we, we're bi-coastal, so it's been, um, it's been hard. It's hard to get together. Jared is uh, like a session musician, so he's gone a lot of time. I think in 2019, we were able to get access to him for a total of like four days. Oh, wow. And when I found out he was going to be in Philly for a few days, I just like canceled my, I cleared my calendar for like three days. And we just like practiced like 12 hours a day. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and then at some point, um, you know, I'm like getting on those guys to get together and practice out in California. And um, this is like, you know, still I was in that zone where I'm like, yeah, no one's, I'm, I wasn't thinking of getting on an airplane or anything because of COVID and all that. And then at some point I'm like harassing those guys to get together. And I'm like, this is stupid. Like I, if, if I don't go out there, like I can't just expect them to do stuff without me. So I think what, by the time, when we decided it felt safe to get on a plane, we I went and uh, and we spent like a, you know another like seventy two hours just like we we're just in Jared's practice space like all day, like dusk to dawn, just ordering food and coffee uh, and just working. And you know, originally I think this is going to be another seven inch, and then it just became clear that there was a lot more to say, and so that you know that extended the process too, um, and then you know. We had to like we we think obsessively about every aspect of like how we present things. So we're trying to think of who we would work with to put it out and like where we would record and all that stuff. And all those decisions take a long time for us. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's the band was never on hiatus. The band is just uh, all over the place. Yeah, as we get older, there's more and more responsibilities. So it just seems to be the way that it goes. Yeah, I think when we started, like when we started having the conversation about, like, let's just how you know how are we going to get it together in person again and write? It had probably been like five years since we'd put out a record, and here we are, and now it's you know it's been ten. But I'm really excited. Like, I, and same thing with the Open City record. Like this, uh, the Open City LP is coming out a month before the Painted Black record, and for a long time I wasn't sure it was going to happen. I was going to say, this must be a, a very exciting year for you, because we've got Open City, Hands in the Honey Jar, coming out on October 6th, and then we've got Paint It Black Famine, coming out on Revelation on November 3rd. Yeah, Hands in the Honey Jar is coming out on Get Better Records, um, 
who were a Philly label now located, relocated to Los Angeles. And, you know, Open City came together because, uh, because Painted Black slowed down when Jared moved to California. Right. So you guys wanted something local, right? That you yeah. could, where everyone was just there. I remember approaching Andy saying, like, we got to do a band. Well, first of all, like, I want to play guitar again. Second of all, we got to do a band where everybody lives here. And they like, remember when we used to practice every week? And there's like one night a week, we always got together and practice. Unless somebody was like sick or on vacation. Like, we got to do that again. You know, because like, Painted Black was bi-coastal. Andy was in ceremony at that point, And his whole band was in California, except he was in Philadelphia. And so we were both in these bands that were like let's just say challenge geographically. And, and that made like logistics kind of complicated. And so we, you know, it was cool because it gave us a choice, a chance to work with some people that we like had long admired and, uh, finally got to play with. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. So we've been, you know, we've been watching Chris play drums for Ted Leo and the pharmacists for years. Just like, I'm like, wow, he's so amazing. Holy crap. And, um, and same with Rachel, you know, we, we'd, um, we'd, we'd watch Rachel play in Bridge and Tunnel and Zombie Dogs and, uh, and just seeing her around the, the Long Island hardcore scene. And then she moved, and then she moved to Philly. Um, and so we really had this, like, this combination of people where, like, we felt really privileged to even be, like, writing songs with them and playing shows with them. So it was really exciting. And then, you know, that band became Bicoastal too. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, Wait, who moved away? Well, Andy Andy is the bass player from for Painted Black and for Open City, and he moved to California right before the pandemic. Ah, uh, so now you're back in the same situation. Yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> and then you know, and then I joined Bitter Branches because well, I mean, three reasons: I like the people, I like their music, and and we practice every we all live in philadelphia and practice every week yes bitter branches with the great tim singer and many other uh talented players another excellent band you're part of it's another it's another, like i can't it's another situation where like i can't believe my good fortune you know yeah i want to do i want to do a quick count here let's see that's one two three four five excellent bands you've been in or are in pretty amazing right uh it's i've been lucky yeah i've been lucky um yeah i think it's like um it is much more about persistence than talent um so i don't know i love i love playing with people that you know i have i have a lot of respect i love playing with people that i have like a lot of musical respect for and i have like just good energy with and and each band speaks to like a different part of me i guess and a different part of me speaks through each band oh yeah definitely they they each have a uh unique sound and you're covering all bases bass guitar and vocals do you have a favorite out of those three and um well you notice no one's mentioned drums and nobody will let me near a drum set um <laughs> do i have a favorite um no, there's something I like about each role that is different from the others. So I think guitar, I really just get to express such a exciting range of influences. Um, but, you know, I always like make the mistake of writing uh, 
to the extremity of what I'm physically capable of or a little bit beyond it. So I tend to write parts that I can barely play, which is on one hand is how I've gotten marginally better over the years, but um <laughs> but it's a bad habit too, because I'm like, can I execute this? Do I have to dumb it down a little bit? Um and the answer is always somewhere in the middle there. Um vocals I really like writing I write I like writing lyrics. Um I get pretty obsessive about it. And then I would say bass is best suited for like the size of my hands. Like it's comfortable in a different way. My hands are kind of cramped on the guitar. Um, so in terms of like physicality, I'm probably best suited for bass. Yeah, I also play bass in a band. I, I like in that specific band, I just kind of show up and do my thing. And I like that about playing bass. Mm. You just have to show up and do your thing. Yeah. So I don't know. I can't say I have a favorite. Like there's something about each that's really, uh, really exciting. Absolutely. It's good to be able to do it all, right? I mean, uh, in each of your bands, you get to you get to experience each of the instruments, except drums. We're going to leave that to the experts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mess with that. That takes actual coordination. I'm not like the bar is pretty high there. How does it work uh, in Paint It Black? Are you still writing songs and bringing parts to people like i know i've read that that's how it was working in the beginning you were writing songs you were writing lyrics and then you guys would work it out is that still how it works yeah yeah i come up with most of the most of the musical parts and just and then i what i prefer to do is leave it like show them and then leave like literally leave yeah um because they kind of turn everything inside out and you know chop everything up and then glue it back together again or reassemble it differently uh, yes. i like i like just um you know there it's like a really talented group of musicians like i'm not a technic i'm not a technically good player i just write i think i write good songs um and so i like and really like the the real what i love about painted black is the uh the arranging that happens when I'm not there. It's got to be nice to just uh, drop it off and then come back to some great arrangement, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the trust there is really powerful. Yeah. And then, you know, it runs both ways. I mean, they, they trust me to come up with ideas um, that are sort of, that are worth their time that they get excited about. And, and they trust me to, to handle the words. Right. So I'm grateful for that arrangement. And then it works a little differently in each band. And um, in Bitter Branches, Matt does most of the writing. He's a genius. Um, but again, the band works together to arrange things. And that's, that's a lot of what the songwriting is. Right. Yeah, I find that the arrangement seems to be the m most important part. If I tell someone how to play something, they seem to, not, they seem to really not like that. So, but if I just play it and kind of let the arrangement come together and every, let everybody work on that, that that seems to be the way. Yeah. So all in all, it's just like it's, it's really uh, it's fun and exciting, and and to work with the, the, such a varied group of people and having records about to come out is always like the best feeling as a musician. 
I say musician in quotes, in air quotes, but um, <laughs> it's like really exciting to have records that are like about to drop. Uh, right. Two of the them. Open, yeah. The Open City record is coming in a month and paint a black record a month after that. Uh, and then we just got out of the studio recording a, a Bitter Branches LP. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, I saw on Facebook, uh, was that Ian Mackay who dropped by your practice space? Nope. I no? don't know what that's about. What, do you, what are we talking about? Bitter Branches? What did you see? I, I thought I saw a picture of Ian Mackay at, at a practice of yours. Oh, Jay Robbins. Jay Robbins. Oh, that's Jay Robbins. Okay. Yeah. Is there a, yeah. Is there a Jay Robbins guest spot on the next record? No, he recorded the record. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, so he came part of like the I guess what you would call the pre-production process was he came to practice, um, like a, about a month before we came down to studio. We've been sending him demos for a few months, and then he came to practice, which is really like I was so excited because I've had a relationship with Jay for a long time. He recorded two painted black LPs, and I can't believe he came up to Philly at like nine o'clock at night on a Wednesday, but he did. And then the rehearsal space flooded while he was there, so that was wild. Uh, he was helping us like stack amps on top on top of other amps, so stuff wouldn't get waterlogged. Oh, um, man. Yeah, and then we were down at his studio, the Mag- Magpie Cage in Baltimore, last week before last. Amazing, a lot of good stuff on the horizon, huh? Yeah, I'm really excited. Definitely overcommitted, but excited. That's the way to be, though. I mean, you seem pretty driven. You- I don't know. I think I might I might have gotten myself in over my head, but we'll see. We'll see. We're going to have to wait and see. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, too, about uh, when Lifetime got back together. Was that prompted by Fallout Boy citing you as an influence and, and you going, you know, you getting that tour offer with them? Oh, God, no. Um, we also didn't have a tour offer from them, and, or, and we didn't tour with them. You didn't tour with them? I thought you did. No, that's not a thing that ever happened. The bass player from Fall Out Boy did put out the record because um, he had a label for a while. But no, we got back together because there was, well, I don't know. It's a long story and it's it's a matter of public record. So it's not that interesting. <laughs> Give me the short version since we're here. Um, there was this, uh, this hardcore festival called Hellfest, which is... Not the same as the Hellfest that currently exists, I don't think. I think there's another one, but... The one in Europe. Oh, right. Yeah. This is the whole Hellfest debacle. Um, yeah, and it's been this thing that was started out, you know, in like a VFW hall, and it got a little bigger every year. And then this one year, it was supposed to be at like a monster truck arena or something like that in central Jersey. Um, and, you know, each year they've been offering us money to, to play. And... um you know, it's, that never felt like a good reason in and of itself. But then this one year, they offered us a kind of an obscene sum of money to uh, donate to the charity of our choice. Mm-hmm. I think it originally came out of them trying to do fundraising to keep CBGBs open, but then it changed into something else. And so at that point, we were like, kind of like, well, that would that's kind of like a cool opportunity to do something good and like the least cynical reason so we could think of to like play together again. Yeah. And I think it started out as like a, 
you know, a bunch of emails back and forth. I'm like, am I crazy or does this not sound like a totally bad idea? And that, <laughs> that turned into like some sort of mounting enthusiasm. And then, uh, and then we started practicing. And uh, Pete lived in, in the Bay Area at the time. And the rest of us were in, in the, like in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And we started practicing and it was really fun. And then um, the festival was badly managed and got canceled at the last minute. And we were all here, like Pete had flown out. We'd practiced like, practiced like 20 times for that show, like a lot of practicing. And, um, and then, you know, we have a lot of friends that do shows. And so people were able to put together like a Friday, Saturday and Sunday shows for us. And they were just so much fun that we started playing again. That's awesome. Yeah, I was at that show. It was you guys in 108 this one night at Starland, I think. Starlight Ballroom in Philly, yeah. Yeah, that was a good yeah, time. That was, uh, I think the first night was the Trocadero, the second night was at Starlight, and then the third night was at Stone Pony in, in Asbury Park. So how did it feel to be playing together again after all that time? It was fun. Yeah. Like a real, it was just, you know, in some ways felt like no time had passed and sometimes felt like an, an entire era had passed. But right. it felt really good to, good to be playing together again. And some of my closest friends, so. That's awesome stuff. Well, listen, we want to remind people, we've got two records coming up, Paint It Black, Famine, that's out on Revelation Records, November 3rd, and Open City, Hands in the Honey Jar on Get Better Records, that's October 6th, that we have to pick those up, right? Yeah, I, they're good records, I promise. Yeah. No, Dan, I, looking at your resume here, you don't miss. You do not miss. I've liked everything you've done. Well, that's really kind of you. I appreciate that. Of course. What about uh, upcoming gigs? Do you have anything booked with any uh, bands where we can come see you? Yeah, we have. Um, right now, the only things we have booked is uh, Painted Black has some stuff. Um, Open City is harder because Rachel is a professional bike racer, and she's pretty much spoken for every weekend except for like February and March. Um but Paint It Black is playing the Fest in Gainesville. We're playing two record release shows in Philly at the Unitarian Church. And then we've got some stuff coming up in the new year uh, as well that isn't finalized yet. Awesome. Um, is there anything else we didn't cover? I think we got it. I think we got it. I really appreciate the time and the, the interest in what we're doing. Yeah, of course. Dan, I've been listening to you since I discovered this music, and I really appreciate everything you do. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I'm happy to do it. It's nice talking to you. And there you have it. Dan Yemen. Excellent, excellent conversation. Look at the guy's resume. He does not miss. I mean, when I got into this music, you know, Lifetime was a band I got into pretty quickly. Everybody loved them. They were broken up in 1998 by the time I discovered all of this music, but that was a band I got into pretty early on. Very cool to hear about them. Kid Dynamite. Kid Dynamite was my favorite band when I was like 19, 20. I really, really loved them. Awesome stuff. And not to mention everything Dan is doing now. Paint it black, classic stuff. Open City, I love everything I've heard from them so far. And Bitter Branches, 
He's very active in music right now, and he does not miss everything he's done is good. Excellent stuff. Thank you so much, Dan, for coming on the show. So let's check in, huh? How are we doing? How are we doing? I'm doing all right. It's a pretty quiet week, but just a, it's a normal amount of busy this week. And I'm okay with that. It's still rainy. It's been rainy here in New York City. I feel like it's been raining for the entire month of September and October at this point, but what are you going to do? It's better than it being too hot. I'll take this over extreme heat any day, but I'm doing okay. Uh, my voice, if it sounds a little hoarse, it's because I just came from band practice. It's Saturday here, and uh, I'm starting a new band. It's a three-piece. I sing and play guitar, and there's a bassist and a drummer. This one's going to be on the heavier side. We do have a name. We're going to demo some songs next month and maybe launch it, uh, I don't know, early next year, end of this year. I don't know. It depends. It depends on some things, but that's coming. I'm very excited about that. I've got some Darling Fire shows coming up at the end of the month. Uh, I listed those in the beginning and we'll be posting about those very soon. So keep an eye out for those. They're in various places, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia. So if you live in those areas, you'll have to come through. Uh, those posts, those will be announced soon. And otherwise, uh, you know, it's just uh, business as usual here. So let's do the new scene community hour thing here. How about that? I've got a new review from ERT Beer Guy. He says, first episode, five stars. Drain Singer was my first episode of the podcast. I'm an older guy and just discovered Drain last year and saw them at Furnace Fest, which led me to find out more about them. And this episode popped up. I really enjoyed the episode and plan to check out more episodes. Look at that. ERT Beer Guy hears the show for the first time, goes right to Apple Podcasts, and leaves a five-star review. And now he's locked in for more episodes. That's the way to do it. Thank you, ERT Beer Guy. So that brings us to 135 Apple Podcast reviews. Look, I need to get us over 200. I have to. I have to get us over 200 on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We have a long way to go on Apple Podcasts. So if you have not left a review there yet, if you're not going to write one, that's fine. Just go open up the podcast app thing and hit the five-star button. That's enough. But if you really want to, you can write a review too. And I think on Spotify, we're at 185. So we only need 15 more to get us over to 200 on Spotify. Help. I'm asking for your help. Let's do this. Speaking of Spotify, we have some Q&A for a couple episodes. Episode 195 with Sammy Siramataro of Drain. Bob McCobb said, one of the best new music pods. You hear that? That's amazing. He's talking about us. I love that. Thank you, Bob. Episode 194, Sal Ellington of Rebuilder. Mike Golan says, great episode. Cool that Iodine picked these guys up. I agree. Thank you, Mike. We know Mike. I was just hanging out with him last week. Thank you, Mike. Much appreciated. And that is it for Spotify feedback. And uh, you know what? I like when people uh, go through and like listen to the whole show or most of the episodes. I've been talking to someone from the band Intent Accident. Check them out. Uh, you know, like they heard me talking about how I'm starting a new band and messaged me and they were like, hey, is your band on this show? And I said, no, not yet. It's not launched yet. But I, I thought that was funny. I just like, I like when people uh, go through and listen to all the episodes, right? 
and they'll like ask me about stuff and I've completely forgotten about it by that point. So it's it's just a it's kind of trippy. You know, I like I record this show every week and put it out there, but I forget that people actually listen to it and, you know, actually care about stuff that I say sometimes. So it's cool. It's cool. What else is going on? Okay. So it's like October now, you know, Halloween, all that good stuff, right? So I want I wanted to watch the uh the Jeffrey Dahmer show again on Netflix. Because I watched it around this time last year and it was really good and, you know, I want something creepy to watch, Halloween, and there's nothing else good out right now. So I'm like, let me watch this show again, right? So I watched the show again and it was good. And so I I, I get like sucked into that case, like it just because it's just so out there, you know, I like start reading stuff and watching uh, court videos and all this stuff. So that brought me to Reddit and Reddit can be insane. There's this Reddit page of Jeffrey Dahmer conspiracy theorists, right? And the the angle is that, uh, I don't know, all the victims that he killed aren't dead. Some of them are still alive and living in Florida. And uh, one one post I read said that uh, after Jeffrey Dahmer killed his second victim, uh, the FBI came to him and his parents and said, okay, your son is going to take the fall for this massive criminal conspiracy and uh, because he murdered this guy. So he will be our crisis actor in this big plot and that him and that Jeffrey and his parents went along with it. It was so insane. I kept reading and reading posts on this Reddit to see like what the angle was, like why? Why is Jeffrey Dahmer a crisis actor in this large criminal conspiracy. Why did the FBI set him up? And it was insane. I couldn't find an answer. The problem is, okay, here's the problem. There used to be dignified crazy, right? Back in the day before the internet. Maybe you had some weird thoughts or maybe you bought into a conspiracy theory, whatever. But then, uh, you know, you get older, you get hobbies, you get a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a partner or whatever, and you forget about it. But now there's community crazy, okay? And there is an insane community for anything online now, even Jeffrey Dahmer conspiracy theorists. So they all get together and they just come up with these insane theories that make no sense and aren't plausible. But I guess Reddit is rife with that. and. That's like a thing. Like people think there's a conspiracy for everything. And I don't know if these people actually believe it. Like maybe it's just fun to go on Reddit and pick things apart with other people and call everything a conspiracy. I don't know. I don't know. But it was pretty wild, pretty wild stuff. I don't remember the name of the page exactly, but I'm not going to plug it because look, they don't need more people going over there, getting their heads all mixed up. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So yeah. That's about it. It's a pretty quiet weekend here. Did band practice, finishing up all the podcast stuff. Probably going to watch a movie later. Equalizer 3, I think, is available to rent now. Huh? That's a great series. It is ridiculous, I know, but it's just the right amount of ridiculous. And I'm looking forward to watching the third installment in that series. So that's it. That is it for this week. But you know me, I'm here every single week. No matter what, as long as I am alive and conscious, I will be here to deliver another episode of the show. Now, early in the show, I mentioned End, right? And I said, Necessary Death has the best modern breakdown 
in modern hardcore. And by modern hardcore, I mean like 2016 and forward. So we're going to end with a clip of Necessary Death. And you tell me if you agree with me. I'm back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks everybody for listening. And until next time.